Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Good evening, everyone. Um, it really is indeed sad that it's our last session of this missions conference. But um, even though it's our last session of the missions conference, the mission continues tomorrow morning. The mission continues. And so when we wake up, it's another day full of opportunities to serve the Lord. And we have this mission, missions conference to encourage ourselves and to uh, challenge ourselves to go and be God's people in the midst of a people who do not yet know Him. And so I hope that we can uh, finish on a high note. Uh, so if you would, uh, let's turn to tonight's passage, uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts chapter 11. And we are going to read verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 11 from verse 19. This is God's word. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him back, brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the passage we just read is a really important passage teaching us about the advancement of the gospel into Gentile territory, non-Jewish people hearing the gospel. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a key verse to understand the timing or the unfolding of the gospel's advance. The gospel first spreads in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. 
And Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, records for us how the gospel spread further and further. And eventually in chapter 11, he tells us of how the gospel came to a city named Antioch. Now, if you look on Google Maps, Antioch is about 723 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And so if you drive by car, it'll take you nearly 10 hours to get there. That's a really long drive. And so even by today's standards, it's a pretty long way to travel. Uh, in those days, it was the third largest city in the world. About 800,000 people lived there. And Antioch was called all the world in one city because it was a place where you could find all of the riches, richness, all of the diversity in one place. But also Antioch was known to be a very pagan city. It was known for its worship of the goddess Daphne. And uh, the way that they worshipped this goddess also included some very unwholesome R-rated rituals. It was a city known to devour every available pleasure. It was maybe like an ancient Las Vegas and it was to this city that scattered Christians came to. And it was in this city that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. It was in this big pagan city that a thriving gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving church was established. And this whole passage just drips with encouraging gospel Ministry. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 26, for a whole year Saul and Barnabas met with the church and taught a great many people. And so what we have here is just a beautiful, encouraging, challenging account of how the gospel started to impact the nations. Now, what made this church plant so successful? What kind of church planting strategy did these guys use? Who were the ones involved in the work? Those are some of the things, some of the details I want to scope out together here from this passage, and I believe it's going to be a great encouragement to us. It's going to be a great challenge for us in our own gospel endeavors, in our own lives, day to day, where we try to serve Jesus in making him known. So firstly, we are told in verse 19 that those scattered because of persecution traveled to places as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. This is the same persecution we read about in Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And uh, this persecution was so bad that the Christians had to literally run for their lives. I'm sure that a lot of you might be familiar with some of those really um, startling images of refugees from Ukraine packing their belongings into their bags and escaping to neighboring countries, fleeing for their lives. Very much the same situation for those early Christians. They had to run away or risk being captured or killed. Just imagine the desperation and the danger. One of their leaders, Stephen, was stoned to death. Saul was going from house to house, literally dragging Christians off to prison. These guys faced some serious suffering. Suffering. 
And I wonder if we can even begin to relate to them. Have you been in a dark place wondering where is God, maybe facing something difficult, and you wonder, God, why is this happening to me? I think in our four years in Japan, we've, we've gone through some pretty difficult things. Uh, our first year, or was it our second year? Our first year, we went through a very large earthquake, like the very first major earthquake that I experienced in my life. And uh, have you ever tried cleaning tiny pieces of glass mixed with olive oil and flour lying all over the kitchen floor? It's as difficult as it sounds. <laughs> and uh, for months, there were aftershocks, and I had nightmares, and it was just a really, really hard time. I can think of another example where Ava and I were just out in a park minding our own business. And uh, then this woman who was part of a Buddhist cult attacked our faith in Jesus. She, she came to us and she tried to force us to recite this Buddhist prayer. And we told her, you know, no, thank you. We, we Christians, we follow Jesus. And uh, then she began to attack our faith and telling us that Jesus has no power. Our religion is fake. There's no evidence for Christianity. And so we just were like, okay, like, wow, what is, where is this coming from? And of course, we are not the only ones going through various trials and difficulty. I know COVID has brought big disruption to many people's lives. While we were in Japan, we heard really sad news from friends, people getting sick, people passing away, people losing income, and those kind of things make us wonder, God, where are you? And during those times, maybe missions would be the last thing on your mind. Who wants to think about missions when you lost your job? Who wants to think about missions when your faith is being attacked? And so, friends, that's what makes these early Christians so amazing. Their reaction is just so amazing because while they were running for their lives, they were speaking the word. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Because whenever we face difficulty and trials, like I think all of us do, our natural tendency is we, we want to run away from risk. We want to get into a bunker. How can I protect myself? How can I take care of myself? Um, what's the very first thing ha that happens? What, what do people do? As soon as there's, there's a sniff of danger, people do what? They go out to the shops and they buy all of the toilet paper and all of the food items that they can find. That's how I knew when COVID struck Japan, like I, I wasn't sure about how bad it was. And the day I went to the shop and I was like, oh snap, there's no toilet paper. Like I knew, okay, something, something big is happening here. And so we get so distracted by suffering that we sometimes miss what God intends to do through that suffering. Earlier I spoke about an earthquake and a cult leader, and amazingly, God used both of those hard things to bring about some amazing opportunities. So after the earthquake, I was able to meet my neighbor. She said, hey, come and look at my house. It's totally destroyed. I was never able to, to meet her before then, but now being able to go in there and meet her for the first time, 
great conversations with students that we were reaching out to. This uh, lady who attacked, attacked our faith that challenged me to think about what it is that I believe as a Christian, what is the evidence for our faith. And so I started to prepare, just started studying, and I prepared a sermon that I preached, and God used that sermon just in a way that just really blew me away and surprised me. And so only a sovereign God can take suffering and bring about his gospel advancing purposes. And God does it over and over again. COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, unrest in South Africa, God is able to turn these things into good. And I think it is such an important lesson for us to learn as a church because our mandate, our mission in taking the gospel to the nations is not set back by suffering. It cannot be destroyed by hardship. It is not delayed by adversity. The gospel continues to advance at the pace set by our sovereign God. And by faith, we need to grab hold of those opportunities that we get to share in the joy. And so don't be that Christian that looks at the world. We, our theme is a wayward world and a working church. Don't be that Christian that looks at the wayward world and says, oh, we're just living in the last days. There's no point. Look at how bad things have become. Christian, don't you have gospel hope beating in your chest? Is Christ not still king and sovereign? We believe that. And so let us be people of hope. Let us be people of hope even during dark days, even in the midst of suffering, preaching the good news of Jesus like these early believers did. Now interestingly, when we look at the end of verse 19, it says that these believers, it says they spoke the word to no one except Jews. And we are not told why, and so we can just kind of take a stab, maybe an educated guess, uh, it could be that they had some Jewish prejudice. You know, Jesus is a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the descendant of King David. And so we should preach this gospel to our fellow Jews. Makes sense, doesn't it? Or maybe they felt that the cultural gap between them and the Gentiles was just too big. We don't understand their weird language. We don't understand their weird customs or their weird culture. So let's just focus on reaching our own people. Or perhaps they thought, those Greeks are too far gone, man. Look at these immoral things that they are doing. Surely we're going to have a lot more success by speaking to our fellow Jews. Perhaps that's why they only spoke to Jews. But then we get to verse 20. But there were some of them. Praise God for these guys. There were some of the men from Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. By the way, Hellenists are just simply Greek people. These guys were most likely Greek-speaking Jews, and they were not satisfied with the gospel only being preached to Jews. They correctly believed that the good news of Jesus is for all nations, for all people, for all cultures, for all languages. And so they arrived in Antioch, and during their day-to-day -day activities, they were sharing the gospel with Greek people. And I don't think that they were even aware of the significance of what was happening here. They were simply speaking about the joy of knowing Jesus, speaking about what Jesus has done for them. And it's amazing that there's no, 
official direction. There's no human instruction. There's no sending church or supporting church. They came on their own and they just started to talk about Jesus. And look what it says next. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Exciting stuff. The hand of the Lord was with them. This is a very special phrase that we read in the Bible. It's a phrase used many, many times in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's only used three times. And its rarity tells us something about its significance. So, it is only for marking special occasions. Luke one sixty six. it's used to indicate God's favor and blessing upon the ministry of John the Baptist. Acts chapter 13.11 is used to indicate God's favor and special blessing upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And in our passage today, it's used to indicate God's favor and blessing upon which great Christian? What are the names of these great Christians who broke cultural barriers, taking the gospel to pagan Greeks in Antioch, established a vibrant multicultural gospel church? What are their names? Can't find it because it's not there. They are anonymous, ordinary Christians. Such a significant event in gospel history, and we don't even know their names. And I don't know about you, but I actually find this to be really encouraging. Because Antioch was evangelized not by apostles, but by average members of Christ's body who were willing to share their faith. No church planting strategies, no church structure, no apostles, no deacons, no pastors. Just the Lord's hand blessing the work of obedient servants. And the result was a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It shows us the power of speaking the gospel to people. The sharing of the gospel by Ordinary believers, blessed by the hand of God, resulted in a great harvest of souls. And so the Spirit of God blew away the hold of paganism. The gospel had arrived in full force here in Antioch. Materialistic, immoral, pagan Antioch now has a new heavenly vitality burning brightly in the midst of spiritual darkness. The gospel has arrived. The hand of God is involved and the fruit is undeniable. Praise God. Some of you know that we are hoping to go back to Japan to plant a church. And I've been thinking, what's the best way to be involved? What books should I read? What courses should I do? What strategies should I use? And I think those things are all important. But even more important is I should be asking, God, I need your hand. Help me to be obedient in sharing the good news. Bless me with your favor to do this work. That's what we all should do. Pray that God's hand would be with you as you go to share the good news. And let me remind you, these were just ordinary Christians 
We don't have their names even recorded for us. They were not there to build their own kingdom. They were, interested in, they were not interested in preserving their own names, but they were in it only for the name of Jesus, and God used them. And we, like them, are to be Christians who seek to magnify the name of Jesus in our communities, magnify the name of Jesus amongst the nations, because it's not right for only me to know. It's not right for only my family to know. It's, a, it's not right for only my church to know. God is too great. The gospel is too wonderful. All people should know. And these Christians felt that in the very depth of their heart, and they acted on it by opening their mouths to speak the good news. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Amazing. So what happens next? News of what's happening in Antioch, this exciting thing happening, reaches the church in Jerusalem. And at this point, the church in Jerusalem is kind of like a mother church. Uh, there's stability, there's good leadership, there's mature theology there. And so they hear what's happening in Antioch, and they decide to send Barnabas to go and, go and like investigate. What's, what's happening over there? And so Barnabas goes, and this is what it says in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, I really appreciate what Barnabas does here because he easily could have seen the situation quite differently, I think. These believers in Antioch, they were new, untaught Christians. They still had a lot of maybe Antioch smell to them. They had some bad habits, some unbiblical ways of thinking, some ignorance, some holes in their morality perhaps. They still had a long way to go. But Barnabas doesn't even mention that stuff. Why? Because he could see the grace of God in their lives. He could see Christian grace and charm in their lives. He could see the fruit of the Spirit slowly but steadily growing. So what does he do? He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't look down on their young faith. Instead, he encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then we get this very beautiful description of Barnabas. It says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And so it seems providentially, God sends just the right guy to come and inv investigate this new work in Antioch. And it seems that Barnabas's presence and his attitude resulted in further growth, because it tells us a second time, a great many people were added to the Lord. And so first we see the obedience of ordinary Christians preaching the gospel resulted in a great number of new believers. Now next we see that the gracious encouragement of a godly leader results in a great number of new believers. And so there's this explosive growth happening in Antioch. And what does Barnabas do next? He leaves. Verse 25 says, he left and went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And I think this is such a humble and godly response from Barnabas because, I mean, if he wanted to, he could have stayed there and he could have built a name for himself in Antioch, right? He could have been the main man there. 
He could have been the rock star, mega church pastor if he wanted to. He could have been the guy with his face on the billboard, Brother Barnabas, the rock of Antioch. He could have had that, but he said, I don't want that. Because that's not good for the name of Jesus. That's not good for the church. And so he leaves to go and find Paul. He realizes that he's gifted, but he doesn't have all the gifts. And he leaves and he goes to look for Paul. In those days, you couldn't just like send a quick WhatsApp, quick email, hey, what's up, Paul? Come here and help me disciple all these new people. Couldn't do that. He had to go on a ship. He had to sail. He had to go find him. And so he eventually gets there and he finds Paul. He brings him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it is here in Antioch where believers were first called Christians. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. So let's carry on briefly. Look at verse 27. Tells us, that prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, bringing this disturbing message about a great famine that will occur over all the world. So now think about this. These guys, they've only been Christians for about a year, right? How do they respond to this? How would most people respond to this? Rush out, go buy all the toilet paper, right? Get out there, buy as much stuff as you can, panic buy People will be tight-fisted with their money so that you can ensure the impact of the famine is as small as possible. Running away from risk, but not these young believers in Antioch. They understand that a core part of gospel living is to be generous. Jesus has been generous to me, so I can be generous to others. They understand this. And so when they hear about this famine that's going to bring calamity and hardship, they determined to give support and aid to those living in Judea. So those gifts were just a wonderful testimony of their new and vibrant faith in Jesus. Really wonderful, challenging example of Christian generosity. So let's get back to that phrase in verse 26, where it says, In Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now, today the word Christian is perhaps one of the vaguest labels in the English language. During colonial days, if you were a white person, you were a Christian. Some cultures think North America, European nations, or Christian nations. In Japan, people think that Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, Protestants, they're all the same. They're Christian. In South Africa, you know, there's a lot of cultural Christianity. I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim, but I'm not a complete atheist, so I guess that kind of makes me Christian. And for these reasons, some Christians, they don't even want to call themselves Christians, they would say, I'm a Jesus follower, or I'm a disciple of Jesus. But now when we look at these early Christians, they already had a whole list of names that they could use, saints, disciples, believers, etc., etc., but Christian wasn't one of the labels that they used. They never referred to themselves as Christians. The term Christian was a name given to them by the people of Antioch who could no longer deny their influence and identity as a diverse community of people committed to Christ. 
These believers influenced the city to such an extent that they were recognized as a group of people marked by their obedience to Jesus. So the people from Antioch, basically what they did, they took the Greek word for Jesus, they added a Latin suffix to create the word Christian. It's often a way to categorize people in those days. So you had Athenians, they were loyal to the goddess Athena, and they were loyal to the city of Athens. You had Romans who were royal to Rome. And so here we have Christians loyal to Christ. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians. And so this nameless group of Christians who experienced the hand of God with them in their gospel endeavors inherited the name of Christ by the people in the community who they were reaching out to. And so all of that happened 2,000 years ago. And so what about today? Are there still Antioch movements in the 21st century? Is it right for us to pray for Antioch movements? Is it right for us to expect Antioch movements in the 21st century? And I would answer an emphatic yes. Because the mission movement of Jesus is still on course. The gospel continues to advance. And just in case you are skeptical, let me share this story with you. In the 1990s, a mixed group of OMF missionaries arrived in Cambodia just as it opened its borders to outsiders. They started to reach out to their neighbors and students in the area. And in 1998, a Sunday worship service was started. The earliest believers were teenagers, and they went with the missionaries to do outreach. Four of them would get on to the church's old motorbike to go to meetings. When there was a flood, they took a boat to ensure the outreach would continue. On one occasion, a villager chased them with a machete for preaching the gospel. They ran for their lives and managed to save the church's bike and guitar. The changed lives of these young people led many of their parents to the Lord. As the church grew, they needed to get a building and decided to build one in an area called Tol Song Ke one of the most dangerous areas in Phnom Penh with plenty of drugs and prostitution. They decided to name the church Jesus Village, trusting that God would bring transformation in that area. The building was completed in 2007, and a sign was put up with the church's name, Jesus Village. But the village head wanted them to remove it because he said the village already had a name and they didn't need the name Jesus Village. However, over years of prayer and faithful witnessing, loving people, the church still stands with the name Jesus Village. And over years, crime in the area went down. And when people who live in the area are asked where they stay, they don't say I stay in, in Tol Sanke. They say, I stay in Jesus' village. 
On Sundays, the back of the church is lined with baby strollers belonging to those teenagers who have now become parents. The church runs hostels for university students, is involved with outreaches in nine locations, two preschools, youth work, multiple new church plants. How do you account for all that fruit? It is because the good hand of God was and is with them. It is because God is advancing his gospel. Antioch movements are still taking place. And I want to encourage us this evening to get on board with what Jesus is doing amongst the nations. Get on board with what Jesus is doing in our communities. Let's pray for more Antioch-type movements around the world, within the people groups of the world. I would love for that to happen in Japan. Man, goodness, I would love for that to happen in Japan. I have mental images of of people, Japanese people that I've shared the gospel with, and I would love for them to fall in love with Jesus. And so what about you? Where would you love to see Antioch movements happen? Who would you love to see fall in love with Jesus? How has God ministered to you through this passage? What is it that he wants you to respond to? This passage, but also this whole missions conference. What is it that God wants you to respond to? I think for me, it's really my obsession with things that are so trivial and my obsession with my own comfort and my own image. You know, maybe you think that missionaries are all wonderful evangelists and outstanding Christians. We're not, right? Just normal, struggling Christians. (laughs) But I do have a longing in my heart. And, And I think that you have that same longing in your heart to be used by God even in a small way. If, if God would use me even in a small way towards Antioch movements in Japan, I'd be so grateful. And so why don't you join me in prayer now and let's ask God together to help us respond, help us to fulfill this unique calling that He's given to each of, of us. Father in heaven, We thank you for the work that you have been doing throughout history, a story of redemption written by a loving and all-powerful God, a story so vast, a story so beautiful, so grand, and a story that each of us can be part of. Revelation 7, 9 tells us that there will be a day where a vast multitude of people, an uncountable number from every nation, tongue, and tribe will gather in one place to worship Jesus. A number that we are part of. But there are still more to be brought in. There are still more to be brought in. We are your people called to go and minister to those who are not yet your people, those who are not yet in this number. We are your church in a wayward world. Help us to be a working church like those early believers in Antioch. Give us the desire to share the story of Jesus. And may your hand be with us as we go out. 
pray for every missionary sent out by Central. Every ministry of Central, every leader, every member, every adherent, every visitor tonight. Help us to see the joy in being part of this epic story about Christ and His mission to draw people from all over the world into His loving arms. Use us, God, for Your name and glory's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.